On today's episode of Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast, we'll be talking about the Celtics and their front office shakeup, take a look at some potential new coaching candidates, and we'll also take an early look at what the offseason could look like for the Celtics. We'll also get into playoff updates as the NBA playoffs are almost entirely into the second round. There is one series still going on, so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about previews for second round series coming up. We'll also give you some thoughts on some news and notes from around the NBA. We will get to the Bruins, talk about the Bruins and their second round series with the Islanders. Bruins took game three, so we'll take a look at some things they did well in game three, some things they didn't, what's kind of next to look for for the Bruins in the rest of the series. Uh, we'll take a look at some other series around the NHL as the second round is well underway. We'll also take a look at the Buffalo Sabres winning the uh, draft draft lottery, and they will get the first pick. Seattle gets the second pick, so we'll take a look at that, take a look at some other news and notes from around the National Hockey League. We'll get to the Red Sox and their struggles on the road in Houston. We'll take a look at their first matchup with the Yankees this weekend. Um, we'll also get more in-depth on the Red Sox and some of the key pitching that they've been able to get over the last couple of weeks from some sources that are rather unexpected. Uh, we'll also take a look around the rest of Major League Baseball. Take a look at the standings as the Red Sox are currently out of first place. So we'll take a look at that. We'll take a look at some uh, Patriots thoughts. There's not a whole lot of stuff. There was some comments that uh, Josh McDaniels made that I thought were interesting about Cam Newton. So we'll take a look at those. Um, and we'll also take a look more into the uh, Julio Jones rumors. Um, and then we will also get to the Revolution talk about the WNBA, and then we will also get to the Premier Lacrosse League that gets underway this weekend. Let's go. And what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the program. It is Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Hayden. And today, folks, there's a lot to talk about, uh, especially in Celtics land. Um, so we're just going to get right into it. Um, but before we do that, uh, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and on Facebook, and you can listen on Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts. So, obviously, Celtics season uh, came to an end the other night with the Celtics uh, bowing out to the Nets in, in five games in the first round. So, you know, I think just before we get into, you know, the big news of Brad Stevens, Danny Ainge, and, you know, all that, um, I think it makes sense to talk about the series as a whole and, you know, when we last spoke with you guys, it was a week ago, it was right before game three. And, you know, I have to say, I was very impressed with how the Celtics played 
um, in that game three. You know, really seemed like a number of guys really came to play. Jason Tatum was awesome. Tristan Thompson probably had his best game with the Celtics um, in that game. And, you know, I think that obviously, you know, Kyrie returning to the Garden had a lot of people in, you know, definitely a, a, a certain type of mood that they were, you know, angry about him returning and wanting him to hear it, wanting him to, you know, feel what it was like to be back in the Garden after, you know, all the, all the stuff that happened. Um, and so I think that the crowd, you know, is energized because of that. And I think that the Celtics really fed off that and really played a really good, a really good game in which, you know, they really seemed to answer everything Brooklyn did. I thought that they played a really good defensive game. You know, they just have three guys that are just, it's, it's almost impossible to get one of them on like an off night. And that's kind of what happened. The Celtics were able to play pretty good defense. Kyrie didn't have a great game. The Celtics were able to pull, come come away with the win. And, you know, I think that in a series like this, in a series in which the Celtics lost in five games, um, it was important to take away some positives from this series. You know, and I thought that the Celtics, honestly, from games three to five, I don't think played all that bad. You know, and I think that it becomes compounded when you play against a team with three potential Hall of Fame players, you know, like I think Durant's going to the Hall. I like, I, I don't want to make this about that conversation about whether they're Hall of Famers or not or what have you. But anytime you're playing against a team with that level of talent, I think that, and I don't want to say moral victories because that sounds stupid, but like I think that going into this series, the Celtics did not have Jalen Brown, and then throughout the series, didn't have Robert Williams, and then at the end of the series, didn't have Kemba Walker for games four and five. And so I think the Celtics honestly did about as well as you could expect. You know, and I know that people want to say, you know, oh, the series sucks, Celtics didn't do anything, weren't competitive, but it's like, I don't really know what you would expect in that scenario. Um when you look at how the series went and, you know, you had that game four where the Celtics honestly did not play that bad. You look at what they did. They put up 126 points, played some pretty good offensive basketball. The Nets scored 141. You know, you had the the trio of Kyrie, Harden, and Durant combined for over 100 points. And it's just like, what do you do in that situation? So I think that you know, there could be some positives that I thought Romeo Langford had a really solid series, had 17 points in game five, made a couple threes. And so I think that there's some hope in his development that he can still be a very solid defender and a guy who can knock down the, knock down the occasional uh, three-pointer. So, you know, I think that the Celtics fought. I thought Tristan Thompson had a pretty solid series. You know, Jason struggled in the first couple of games. Had that 50-point game in game, game three and, you know, really kind of tells you that he's there. He's there on being a the same level as some of these superstar guys. You know, it's like one of those things a couple times in this series, you see him making Durant look absolutely silly on defense. And it's like that right there tells you that Jason's a special player. 
And, you know, the Celtics really need to do everything they can to surround this guy with the best talent and the best the best supporting cast that this team can be the most successful. So Celtics losing five games, you know, it was disappointing, but I think that I don't know. I don't really know what you could have expected from this team in, in a series against a team like the Nets. Um, so I think despite what some popular media people might tell you, I thought the Celtics honestly didn't play all that bad in that series. Game two, yes, they played terrible. You know, that was a really bad game that they played, but I didn't really think that they were, you know, awful. It's not like they lost. It's not like they got swept and lost every game by 20 points. You know, the only game they lost by 20 points was game two. You know, so I think that, yes, it's it, it's it's been a it's been a crappy season. It's been a season that's been really frustrating and disappointing, but I think that, you know, there can be some small positives you could take out of the series. So obviously, then the news, Wednesday morning, um, there were, you know, reports earlier that morning that, you know, Danny Ainge was considering stepping down, and then, you know, we got the the news that, you know, Brad Stevens is going to take his place. So, you know... <sighs> It was a lot to process. It was a lot to process, especially the morning after losing a playoff series and, you know, the morning after a season ended that was one of the most disappointing seasons the Celtics have had in quite a long time. Sure, you could say 2019 was disappointing with, you know, Kyrie basically quitting on the team, but, you know, this this season was by far the most disappointing, I think, that we've witnessed in a very, very long time. It's probably the worst season that we've witnessed since Brad Stevens' first year with the Celtics, and they won 25 games that season. So, you know, I think in one way that says a lot that says that the Celtics honestly have been a pretty decent, pretty consistent team over the over Brad Stevens' tenure as coach. Obviously, didn't get to NBA in any NBA Finals. So, you know, I think that you take it with a grain of salt that, yes, there was some success. It wasn't always great success but I think that there are some people that think you know and obviously we're in a city that it's championship or bust and so a lot of people look at it that way that you know why doesn't Brad Stevens have any finals appearances well you know if you look at some of the times that they got close you know I think that you consider the teams that they were playing against in the conference finals you know it's not like the Celtics really pissed away too many seasons where they had a lot of talent and just didn't didn't perform. You know, arguably one of the seasons that they came the closest or the season that they came the closest to going to the NBA Finals, they were not expected to do that. You know, talking about that season where first season when you got Kyrie and Gordon Hayward, they both get hurt. Celtics go into that playoffs without either of them and they come away with losing in a game seven at home and you know, almost going to the NBA Finals. You know, that to me is absolutely crazy. I don't think Brad Stevens gets enough credit for that particular run. You know, obviously, last season, it was a little disappointing because I think that you were better than the Heat. But, you know, it is what it is. And I think that Brad Stevens has had somewhat of a successful tenure. I think that he's a good coach. I don't think that he's a great coach. But I think that 
there's some people that think that he is a bad coach, and I think that that's a little bit overblown. But anyway, Celtics moving him into the front office, Danny Ainge stepping away, you know, retiring, whatever you want to say. You know, I think that, you know, based on that press conference, it doesn't seem like Danny is going to be joining another team's front office anytime soon. I think that there were some reports that were thinking, oh, maybe he'll take a job with the Utah Jazz. But I think that clearly the stress of the job was a lot for Danny. You know, when you consider that he had a heart attack two years ago that, you know, I think as you find out more, it was more serious than a lot of us thought. You know, I think that clearly when you have some type of event like that, you, you know, start to kind of take a second look at yourself and realize, is this really the best thing for me to do? So, you know, I think that making it clear that, you know, I think the timeline was in March sometime after the trade deadline that, you know, Danny came to the front office and said, hey, you know, I think I can't do this anymore, you know, and so the Celtics go with the plan that Brad Stevens will, will take his place and the Celtics will begin in earnest searching for a head coach. So I think just initially, you know, Danny deserves a lot of credit for, you know, building the Celtics up into a successful franchise. Now, you know, I think one championship, that's fair. You know, I think that the Celtics certainly could have won multiple championships if it wasn't for you know, certain injuries, you know, when you're talking about the big three era. Um, but I think that, you know, when you consider when he came in, the Celtics were kind of just, I don't want to say mediocre, but not really kind of up there in terms of being a big NBA power. So, you know, I think that Danny has made a lot of great trades in his tenure. You know, I think the trade of the Nets was outstanding. You know, when you get in a guy like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum with that trade and you know, bringing in Isaiah Thomas, you know, and I think that unfortunately, you know, his trade for Kyrie somehow looks bad, even though it wasn't, you know, it was a worthwhile trade. It was a worthwhile signing to get Gordon Hayward. It just was too bad that, you know, the injury happened. You know, he signed a guy like Al Horford. And I think that there was some tweet that I saw that it was like a 12 or 13 month span that um, Danny had drafted both Jalen and Jason, you know, had signed Al Horford, had signed Kyrie Irving and er, uh, traded for Kyrie Irving and then signed Gordon Hayward. And it just was like, I think if you think about all those things, if Gordon Hayward never gets hurt, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know where this team would be, but I think that it, I think that, yeah. It makes sense just to say some positive things about Danny, that he did a lot of good for this organization. Um, and me personally wish him well um, in retirement. So I think the first thing about this move is, yeah, it definitely came as a shock. You know, I think that Brad Stevens is a guy that, you know, is a good coach, is is going into the front office really the right thing for them to do. And, you know, I will just say that it's a risk. You know, the Celtics are taking a risk here. Um, but I think, honestly, you'd be taking a risk if you brought in an outside GM. So, you know, there's always a significant amount of risk when you have someone that has run the team for so long and steps away and you have to get someone new to do the job. You know, I think that that's always difficult and challenging. But I think that, and and I can't remember if I heard this or if I saw this somewhere, but I think the Celtics are better off 
looking for a good coach than trying to look for a good GM because they think that good GMs and great GMs like Danny was, they're really hard to come by. You know, they don't grow on trees. There's not someone that you can just pick, pick out and hire. And I think honestly, it's, it's, it's more challenging to pick out a good GM than it is to pick out a good coach, you know? And I think that when you look at some of the coaches that might be available, you know, I think that you have some great options. Um, so I think that, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a challenge, you know, it's something that I think a lot of people are uncertain about, but I will just say, you know, I think that it makes sense to have someone who's the president, GM, whatever you want to call it, be someone that understands the team and understands the team really well. And I think that no one understands this team from a basketball standpoint, like Brad Stevens. You know, sure, Danny understands, I can say Danny doesn't understand basketball, but Brad Stevens is, was at, is at practice every single day with these guys. He's with these guys all the time, and he understands, you know, what makes players tick, what makes them, what makes them successful, what doesn't make them successful, what type of players do they play well around, what players don't. And I think that you know, Brad, in a way, was, I don't want to say put in a certain position by Danny, but he wasn't in a position where he could bring in the type of players that he wanted, you know, and now he really gets the opportunity to do that. Um, and so I just think that I'd rather have someone in a higher up basketball position that understands the team really, really well, rather than someone who's coming in with a totally different perspective. Now, I understand that there are some people that think that that would actually be a good thing for them. But I think that this Celtics team is not a team that needs a desperate big overhaul. And I think that one of the problems in bringing in a brand new general manager is they might really want a clean house. And when I say that, I mean trading like really important players that I think the Celtics need to keep. So guys like Marcus Smart or... Uh, Jalen Brown, you know, guys like that. And I think an outside GM might be motivated to make a make a move like that. And I just think the Celtics are not in a position where they need to really overhaul the entire team. You know, I think that there are tweaks, you know, and I think that obviously this is a big tweak. You know, this is really something unexpected. But I think that what you're going to find is Brad Stevens I think we'll do better at this role than some people think. You know, I think that, you know, understanding contracts and salary stuff and things like that, you know, I can't, I can't imagine that it's that difficult, you know, and Brad's a smart guy. He's a good, smart basketball mind and understands, you know, again, what makes this team tick, what, what, you know, doesn't and, you know, I have confidence that he'll bring in the right type of players that can get this team where it needs to be. And so I think the biggest thing for the Celtics is um, getting some much-needed veteran depth on the bench. I think that's really what they need. You know, I think that you need a number of old veteran guys who've been around, maybe have won a championship, maybe haven't. But just, I think, guys that are going to be important for the development of Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. Because ultimately, these are the guys that you need to build around. And so I think that's one of the first things that they need to do. Um, I would like them to see that. I would like to re would like to see them 
uh, re-sign Evan Fournier. You know, I think that when he's been good, he's been really, really good, and he's been a really good source of offense off the bench or in the starting lineup or wherever he's been. You know, I think, unfortunately, having COVID, you know, ended up being an issue for him, but it's been an issue for everyone. So I think I'd like to keep him. Um, and I think for the Celtics, they need to figure out, you know, if Kemba Walker really is going to be a big part of their roster going forward. Um, because they're on the hook for a lot of money over the next two years. And so I think that this offseason, you might see them trade trade him, um, you know, or just at least rethink what it is you're going to do with him because he's had you know, some knee problems over the last two years and, you know, it's become kind of an issue. So I think that that's something that they need to decide on. You know, Robert Williams is another guy that, you know, does he, I don't think he needs a new contract, but I think you got to seriously think about his future because obviously he's had some injury problems in his career. And so I think that, you know, those are kind of two big question marks for me that I'm not really sure where they're going to go with either of those guys. You know, I think also the improvement of some young players is something that's going to need to happen. You know, I think that um, Romeo Lankford, get him in the gym, get him shooting 100, 200, 300 jump shots a day from three. You know, and I think that the improvement will, will come, but I think that the Celtics need to really reevaluate their bench. And I think that that's really the biggest thing for me. Um, you know, re-signing Fournier, figuring out what to do with Kemba, Robert Williams, you know, those are key things, but I think the bench really is the biggest thing for me. So, you know, we'll see. I think that I have confidence that Brad Stevens can choose a reasonable successor because I think that there are a lot of really good options out there. Um, there are plenty of, you know, former players that I think could come in and could really be players that guys on the Celtics can relate to. You know, someone like a Sam Cassell, someone like a Chauncey Billups, who, you know, had played in the league not too long ago, rather recently. You know, Chauncey Billups, I think, more recently than Sam Cassell. But I think that just former players, guys who've been through the battles, guys who've won championships, you know, and know what it's like to go through the NBA in you know, kind of the the modern day a little bit. So I think that, in my opinion, those are the best two guys that the Celtics could hire. You know, I also think someone like a Carol Lawson would be a great hire because, you know, she really developed quite a, a number of great relationships with a number of Celtics last season when she was on the coaching staff. Um, so I don't know logistically how that would work, you know, as she's the was the coach of the Duke women's basketball team this past year. Um, so I don't know how that would work, but if they could, I absolutely would totally be in favor of that. Um, Becky Hammond is also another name that's been brought up. She's uh, an assistant coach for the Spurs, uh, was an assistant on the Team USA group with um, Kemba Walker, uh, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and, and Marcus Smart. So she was on that staff and um, obviously has been under Greg Popovich for a number of years. And, you know, he's one of the best probably one of the, if not the best coach in the modern NBA. Um, so I think that she would be a tremendous hire too. Um, I also think, you know, Lloyd Pierce, Jason Kidd, those have, those are some names that have also been thrown out. Uh, Lloyd Pierce was also on that uh, Team USA staff, so that's something to 
keep in mind. But I think just at the end of the day, it makes sense for the Celtics to hire kind of a former player like a Sam Cassell or a Chauncey Billups. So um, I think that those would be the best two hires for them. Um, so I think that, you know, again, I think Brad Stevens knows this team really well and I think knows the type of coach that could do, that could work work well with this particular group. And I think especially work well with uh, Jason Tatum and, and Jalen Brown, because these are two guys that you need to build around. They're your two best players. So I think that, I think that you have to, you know, really build around those, your best players. I mean, it's, I think it's rather obvious. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, but I think that it's obviously it's a big risk. Um, and, this is something that certainly is going to be under a lot of heavy scrutiny around here about anything that Brad Stevens does. So, you know, I think that it's, I think that it's, my thoughts are kind of incomplete because I kind of want to see who they hire um, and what type of person that they hire. And I think that it has to be someone that's relatable to the players, um, but also someone that can push them, you know, and also someone that they feel that they can come to, for, for anything, you know, I think that this day and age in the modern NBA, there are coaches that kind of need to be able to relate to players in a, in a variety of different ways. You know, you're not going to, you don't need coaches anymore that are just going to yell and scream at players to get them motivated. That's not how the game works now. Um, so, you know, I think that that's going to be interesting to see. Um, but yeah, we'll keep tabs on that. So as you look at the rest of the NBA, um, and take a look at the other playoff series. Uh, there's only one first-round series that is still going on. The Clippers and the Mavericks will play Game 6 tonight. Mavs are up three games to two. Um, and this is a hugely important game for the Clippers, obviously, facing elimination. But I really think that if this L.A. team goes out in the first round, you could see a lot of big changes um, going on in, in Clipperland. You know, Kawhi Leonard's a free agent. I don't really know if he's going to return. You know, I think that they lose in the first round. I don't really know why he would return, but obviously, you know, who knows? So I think that Clippers need to win this game. But again, like, even if they do, I'm not confident that they win a game seven. You saw how they did in a game seven last year. So I think that obviously Doncic has been incredible in this series, but the Mavs have also gotten some good performances from other guys, you know, Hardaway, Porzingis, Jalen Brunson is a really fun player to watch. So, you know, Dallas can uh, can can win the series tonight. Um, it's been a it's been a fairly interesting series. The road team has won each of the five games. So, you know, we'll get into a game six tonight. Clippers can force a game seven, which I think would be Sunday. Um, so, in the West, obviously, two. Of the three or uh, two first round series finished last night, you have Denver beating Portland 126 115. Now, I was surprised at this series. Uh, the Nuggets win in six games. Jokic was tremendous. Um, but again, you also had a situation where Denver goes into this series without, um, it goes into the series, goes into the playoffs without Jamal Murray. They've gotten Michael Porter Jr., Monte Morris. Uh, Aaron Gordon to play some really good basketball in this series. So I think that, you know, Denver's a team that's a dark horse team, I think for sure. You know, I think a lot of people thought, okay, they lose Murray. And I was one of these people that, okay, they lose Murray. You know, how are they really going to, 
you know, be a team that could that can play with a team like Portland, but they played some really good defense. Uh, Portland just could not buy a bucket in the fourth quarter. That really was the big the big thing in game six. And, you know, Lillard was amazing in this series. I think set an NBA record for uh, most three-pointers in a playoff series. So, you know, obviously there are, I think, a lot of questions in Portland. There was a cryptic uh, Instagram message from Damian Lillard that I think a lot of people are going going crazy over, you know, and I don't really know if it means anything, um, but we'll see. But I think that, you know, a lot of credit needs to go to Denver and Mike Malone. I thought they did a tremendous job in this series. So their reward is to play the Phoenix Suns, who just oust, who just oust, ousted the uh, Los Angeles Lakers um, in the first round. So um, there will be no repeat for the Lakers as the Suns beat them in six games. It was a interesting series in the first four games because I think that you had um, – you know, a Lakers team coming in with LeBron James and Anthony Davis and the rest of that bench that I think was motivated to to win again. Um, and it really looked like it was going to go the Lakers way, I think, especially after uh, Chris Paul hurt himself in game one. And then the Lakers come back and tie the series um, and then took a 2-1 lead. And you were thinking, OK, here we go again. You know, the Lakers are going to get a break and win the series, and then the breaks went the other way. Anthony Davis goes down in Game 4 with an injury, misses Game 5, only played five minutes last night, and, you know, I think the Suns took advantage of it. I think we can call it as it is. I think the Suns got a bit lucky with Anthony Davis going down with that injury. You know, Davis obviously had some injury issues earlier in the season, Um, and I'm not going to say that that's why Phoenix won the series, but, you know, it's impossible to say that that's not a big reason why they won the series. Um, but Devin Booker was amazing last night. He had 47 points. Um, and the Suns really looking like a team to beat. And I think that, you know, yes, the Lakers lose Anthony Davis, but the Suns could have easily played it that way and thought and then thought that, okay, they don't have Anthony Davis. We don't have to play as hard. And they continue to play really hard. So I think kudos to them. You know, Chris Paul clearly... Not totally 100%, but I thought that he really had, had, a, had a really good series. You know, at the end of it, you have uh, Booker. Jay Crowder had a really good series. He had 18 points last night. And so I think, you know, going into this second round series with Denver, I think it's those secondary guys that are going to really be important. You know, obviously Denver, you have Jokic, the Suns, you have Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and DeAndre Ayton. But I think that, you know, guys like, uh, Mikhail Bridges, Jay Crowder, you know, guys like that are really going to be important in this series, you know, and then the Nuggets have a guy like Michael Porter Jr., Monte Morris, who had a really good series. So I think it's really going to be about those secondary guys. The Suns have home court advantage. I think the Suns win this series, but I wouldn't be surprised if Denver pushes this to six or possibly seven. I'd be curious to see what the Suns do defensively on Jokic. Um, because obviously, you know, Aiton is probably going to match up with him in the post. Um, but Jokic obviously is a guy that can shoot the three and can challenge you from outside. So I think that it'll be very curious to see how the Suns choose to defend him. Um, but I like the Suns in the series, but I think that it's going to be, um, a really fun series to watch. Um, and then Utah obviously beating Memphis in five games, they won four straight games in the series. So they will take on the winner of, 
Dallas or the Clippers, I honestly think that Utah will beat either of them because I think that, in my opinion, Utah's a better team than Dallas. And I also just think if the Clippers somehow get out of the first round and get out of it in seven, you know, they will have, I don't want to say wasted energy, but I think that they are going to be really tired. You know, and you have Utah, who's, I think, start to finish has been the best team in the NBA. So it would be a tall task for the for the Clippers to beat them. Um, I also think it would be a tall task for Dallas to beat them, but um, that will be interesting. So game six of the Clippers and Dallas is tonight, and then Utah will await the winner of that series. So in the Eastern Conference, things are all set for the second round. Uh, the Atlanta Hawks beating the Knicks in five games. That was surprising, in my opinion. I thought that uh, the Knicks were going to win the series. Uh, but Atlanta really came to play. They played some good defense. You know, the Knicks had a lot of trouble offensively in this series, which is not something that I saw coming. Um, you know, Julius Randle had a tough series. You know, it's not to say that he's not a good player or anything like that. Won the most improved player in the league, which well-deserved. Um, and so I think... You know, for the Knicks, it might be, you know, on the surface, look like a bad five-game loss to a team that they probably were better than. But I think that things are looking up for the Knicks. And I think, and I'll say this as a Celtics fan, I think that the NBA is better when the Knicks are competitive. And so I think that, you know, this playoff run and this type of season is going to do wonders for the organization. The season may not have ended the way that they wanted it to, but... I really thought that, you know, they've had a great turnaround um, and have had a tremendous kind of revival, if you will. Um, And speaking of revival, the Atlanta Hawks, you know, fired their coach midway through the season. I really was concerned about where they were going. And, you know, lo and behold, they make the playoffs. They look really good. Trey Young looks like he's played in the playoffs for the past six years of his career. Uh, He's not been in the NBA six years, but, you know, it looks like he has played in the playoffs before. I had absolutely no issues with playing at Madison Square Garden. Really was a tremendous performance um, in this series. And Atlanta played really, really well. So, you know, I think that Atlanta going into this second round series with Philadelphia, Philadelphia beating uh, uh, Wizards in five, I think that, I don't think this series hinges on Joel Embiid's health. Um, So Embiid got hurt in game four, I believe. And then the uh, Sixers wrapped up the series in five. Um, and so obviously his news about a partially, or maybe it's slightly, I can't remember if it was partially or slightly torn meniscus, but either way, you know, don't really know what his health is going to be. Um, I think that Philadelphia should beat Atlanta even without Embiid, um, assuming he doesn't play in this series. But, you know, Philly's in a really weird spot because it's like, I think that, yes, you want your best players to play, but at the same time, if Embiid re-aggravates that and tears his meniscus or something like that, you know, that's something that really could affect them going forward as a franchise. So I think the Sixers have to be very careful about how they handle it. Um, But I still think the Sixers are a better team than Atlanta. I think they're a little bit more experienced in the playoffs. Um, But I think that Atlanta surprised a lot of people, and I think that they absolutely could surprise Philadelphia in this series. I don't know if they'll win the series. They could, you know, but I still think Philadelphia is more talented. I think that they have, you know, more shooters to surround Ben Simmons and Embiid, you know, if he's healthy. But um, I think this should be like a low-key entertaining series. 
you know, I think if Embiid was healthy, I pick Philadelphia in five. I still think Philly wins it in six or seven. Um, but I think this, this is going to this is going to be a more entertaining series, um, especially if Embiid is not totally healthy and doesn't play a lot of games in this series. Um, Philadelphia desperately needs McD- Philadelphia definitely needs Embiid to be healthy, though, if they're going to go any further than the second round or conference finals or or what have you, um, because I just don't think they are going to have enough to beat like a Milwaukee or a Brooklyn in the conference finals if they don't have a healthy Embiid. Um, then you have obviously the Nets beating the Celtics. Um, the Nets will beat the Bucks or will meet the Bucks in the second round. Who swept the Heat? Um, this is a series that I think is going to be the best second round series. I think that you have two teams who are coming in, I think, with a chip on their shoulder. You know, I think the Nets are coming in highly motivated when you saw the way that Kyrie Durant and Harden played toward the end of the Celtics series. Um, I think you're going to see a highly motivated Milwaukee group, you know, a team that I think knows that they are playing, that the coach is coaching for his job, essentially. Um, and the Bucks know that kind of this is their year to put it together. Um, and I also think there's something to be said for losing a guy like Dante DiVincenzo um, and playing for a guy like that, who I think would be huge in a series like this against the Nets. But they call me crazy, but I think that I think that the Bucks win the series. I think that they will be able to do a better job defensively against the Nets than the Celtics did. And I don't know if there's someone on on the Nets that can play with Giannis. You know, Durant obviously can match up against him every once in a while, but Durant can't be doing that the whole game because he's going to foul out in about 25 minutes. So I'll be curious to see what the Nets do to try to slow Giannis. Um, but I think for the Bucks to win this series, they need Drew Holiday and uh, Chris Middleton to show up. You know, if they don't play well in this series, there's no way that they win the series. If the two of them play really well, I think they can win the series. I think this goes seven, but I think the Bucks make enough plays. Um, I think the Bucks are more motivated than the Nets. Not that it's a contest or anything like that, but I think that Milwaukee really understands and understands the urgency about this series for, for them as a franchise. So I like the Bucks in seven. I like Philadelphia in six, but I think that obviously it could be it could be somewhat interesting if Embiid is not you know, totally healthy if he returns, if he doesn't, and that sort of thing. So I think just before we move on um, with the, or move on to, to hockey and move out of the NBA, um, I think it makes sense to address the fan behavior um, in the first round. And um, yes, it does include Kyrie Irving, you know, and it makes sense for us to start there and talk about that. That was something I purposely left out when I was talking about the Celtics series um, because I think that it's important that we talk about it and we address it because it's gotten out of hand. It got out of hand in the first round with fans being just exhibiting completely unacceptable behavior um, when, you know, going to a sporting event. And, you know, it just was wild. You know, you had three or four different instances, you know, you had, the fan throwing the water bottle at Kyrie Irving at the end of game four and kind of, you know, makes the Boston fans and the Celtics fans look bad, you know, by doing that. And, you know, it just, 
it's just really unfortunate that we have people that still like believe that that's okay that you can throw stuff at people you know if you don't like them and it's just like athletes are people you know i just i don't understand why people feel the need to treat athletes like they are as kevin durant put it you know in the circus or you know animals or whatever he said and it's just like and it's as it's as he said i get it you know people have been locked inside for the better part of a year and they you know are stressed out and are on edge but it doesn't give you the right to act like that um and so i just think like there's not a lot more you can say but i think the players need to be protected more and i think that you know yeah that van does deserve to be banned now i don't know i don't really want to get into the kind of legal thing about you know, arrest and, you know, should he face jail time and that sort of thing. But, you know, at a certain point, players need to be protected. And I think, like, it doesn't matter what Kyrie did to the Celtics. It doesn't matter that he stomped on a logo or whatever. Like, doesn't make it right, you know. I get it. And I get, you know, Kyrie being super childish, stepping on a logo, like, that's ridiculous, but at the same time, you don't need to throw something. It's like, I don't care how much you hate someone. You don't need to throw stuff at people, especially an athlete. Like, I don't know. It's just like, you come to a game to root for a team, and that's it. You don't get to do anything else. Your job is to go there and support a team or a player. You're like, I feel like people are way too entitled going to games nowadays that they feel like, they are completely untouchable and you know that and and you saw it in the westbrook incident someone dumps popcorn on russell westbrook everyone's trying to stop westbrook from going into the stands you know it's like it's 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 just crazy it's like i'm not sure exactly what i'm trying to get at but i think like you see that, you know, Russell Westbrook is five or six people holding him back to prevent him from going to, you know, do who knows what to that fan, you know. And meanwhile, the fans are basically protected, you know, that, you know, I a player can't do anything to me because I'm, you know, sitting in the stands and a player is going to have all these people being like, okay, you know, calm down, don't, don't escalate. Um, and so it's just, it goes right back into the, protecting the players that the fans literally have there's almost no repercussions for that type of thing it's like yeah you can get banned but you know another fan will watch that and think that it's okay and it's just like it's just gotten totally out of hand you know and i don't even i don't even know what enters people's minds when they think that it's okay to spit at a player you know when you heard about the trey young incident in game two against the knicks i mean that's just like to me, that's even worse than throwing something at a player. You know, that's just like I don't, I don't, I don't know what enters people's minds if they when they think that that's okay. Um, and it's just, it's really frustrating. You know, and going back to the Celtics thing, you know, it's I thought the Celtics fans were honestly on their best behavior. You know, some of the chants were were fine, but then it's like you have one action that overshadows everything and makes all the fans look horrible by comparison. And it just is really unfortunate that there are people that think that they are above that, or they think that they're entitled enough that they can, 
do whatever they want and you know there won't be any consequences so you know it's just it's not something that you ever really want to talk about but you know it, it is what it is and it's just unfortunate that you have people that think that it's okay to do whatever they want to a player say whatever they want you know make someone feel uncomfortable you know you heard the story about utah jazz fans being disrespectful to john morant's family and it's just like it's just sports guys it's just sports you know at the end of the day it's just sports i love sports everyone that listens to this podcast loves sports we all do but it just becomes at a certain point it's just i i don't understand why people need to go so over the line with disrespect when it comes to sports it's just sports at the end of the day, it's just a game. There's no reason to make people feel uncomfortable. There's no reason to be not inclusive. It's just, it's it's insane to me. So um, I know I rambled on a lot about the NBA, but there are a lot of thoughts I had. So uh, we will get to the NHL. We'll talk about the Bruins taking the series lead against the Islanders last night, 2-1 to one in overtime. So the Bruins come into the game following a, an overtime loss in Game 2, had an extra day of rest. Um, and the Bruins, I thought, honestly played a really good defensive game uh, last night. I thought that, you know, this was a game last night that I thought that, okay, this is how the series is probably going to go, that most of these games are going to be like this. Um, Tuka Rask was outstanding. You know, obviously you had some defensive breakdowns with the forward groups, you know, there was definitely a breakdown in that bars alcohol in the third period, but I thought that for the most part, the Bruins were really good defensively, really active sticks. You know, you really noticed guys like McAvoy and Grizzlick last night. Uh, Mike Riley was really, really good. Um, and I also thought Jeremy Lozon bounced back and had a pretty solid night last night. Um, obviously, it's, it's overshadowed by Brandon Carlo's injury, which, you know, I don't want to speculate, but, you know, Carlo has had concussion issues in the past so I think that there's a real possibility that that could be what's happened um so took a totally clean hit from I think it was Clutterbuck it was clearly shoulder to shoulder hit Carlos head you know basically smashes into the into the glass and it just didn't look good you know definitely did not look himself you know after that you know leaving the ice and that sort of thing so it appears like the Bruins probably are going to be down a defenseman so I think just, you know, going back to the game, the defense was good. Tuco was outstanding. He made a number of gigantic saves in the beginning part of overtime. You know, it's crazy how the game works like that, that you can have a, an overtime session where one team is just completely dominating everything, getting shots on goal, getting chances and things like that. And all the Bruins had was a ridiculous snipe by Brad Marchand, and they get the win. You know, it was like almost the opposite of game two where the Bruins came out in the overtime session and played really, really well. It looked like they were going to end it early. And then the Islanders take advantage of a mistake and score. You know, there wasn't a mistake on this goal by Marchand. It just was a ridiculous shot. You know, I just feel like there are some NHL players that could try that shot and could not score on an empty net, you know, and shoot it the way that Marchand did. It's such a... Uh, such a ridiculous angle and hit the post like there are guys that probably couldn't do that like in a practice you know which just goes to show you the ridiculous skill that brad marchand has so bruins win they take a 2-1 series lead um 
I think that there are definitely some things that need to change for the Bruins. Uh, the fourth line, I think, really needs a shakeup. I really think that it's just it's just not working. That that group really just too many turnovers. They're just often not in the right spot. And you know, it seems like a lot of the goals the Bruins have given up in the playoffs are with that fourth line and with the bottom pair. So, you know, I think something needs to change. I think Carson Kuhlman needs to go in the lineup. For Chris Wagner, I really wouldn't hate seeing Trent Frederick in there either. Um, you know, Corrali is just, it's hard to know what you're going to get from him night in and night out. And I know that he's a guy that competes. I know that he's a guy that plays hard. But I think that, you know, he's likely not coming back next season. Um, I just, in my, in my opinion. Um, but I think that, you know, if the Bruins are going to go far in the playoffs, if the Bruins are going to be a team that's going to advance to the next round, if they're going to advance to the cup, they're going to win the cup. You need to have your bottom six be effective. And the Bruins just can't get that right now. And I think that at a certain point, that's going to be exposed. A team like Tampa Bay, a team like Carolina, a team like Colorado, a team like Vegas can expose that and make the Bruins look really bad. So I think they need to just find some consistency from that group. you know. And it's not like Charlie Coyle and that third line is playing poorly. I don't think that they are. I think you know Coyle scored in game two. I thought that that line had some good chances last night. Um, you know, I really don't want to. I don't want to keep harping on DeBrus because I feel like I've done it enough. Um, but I think again that bottom six needs to be at a really good level if the Bruins really are going to be able to win a championship or go really far in the playoffs. Um, so I think it wouldn't hurt for them to try something else. Um, on that fourth line, you know, obviously losing Carlo to the injury really sucks because the Bruins are really shorthanded right now. Obviously, Kevin Miller has not seen action in this series after the high hit in game game four against the Capitals. Um, and we've not seen him in this series. He won't play game four. So, you know, now you're down two right shot defensemen. So, you know, I think... You're probably going to see Jared Tenorti slide in there for game four. I have no idea what the pairs are going to look like. You know, you would think that they keep Grizzly McAvoy together because they've been unbelievable together. That was one of the best performances that the two of them have had all season playing together. That was a great performance by them last night. Um, and then Mike Riley played really, really well. So I think it could be interesting to see if the Bruins maybe bump up Connor Clifton to that top four. Um, you know, and have the bottom pair playing with, you know, someone like, uh, you know, you have Tenorti and then uh, Lausanne, you know, something like that. So I think that Tenorti most likely is going to be the guy that slots in. The Bruins, honestly, I don't, th- don't think have an extra right shot defenseman. I think that they only have, you know, McAvoy, Carlo, and Miller, two of those guys are hurt. So I think that most, li- or, and then Clifton, obviously, so that's four. So, I think that's probably most likely what you're going to see tomorrow night, um, that I think Clifton slides up to take Carlo's spot, and Clifton plays with um, Mike Riley, and then you have Tenorti and Lausanne playing on that third pair. You know, it's not ideal, but I think that it's more ideal than doing something really crazy and putting Lausanne on the top pair with McAvoy, which he's done this season. I don't think that they're going to do that, but it could be possible that they do something like that and play Grizzlick with 
someone like Mike Riley or have him play with Connor Clifton, you know, not really sure what, what it's going to look like. But um, I don't know that that re- injury is really going to hurt them in this series. I think the Bruins are solid enough defensively that they can still beat a team like the Islanders. But if, if Carlo's going to be out for an extended period of time, I don't see the Bruins doing much other than getting past this round. Um, because I think, like I said, they're going to be exposed by some better teams in the next round if Carlo's not going to be available. So, you know, we'll we'll see. We'll keep our fingers crossed. But at least the Bruins have the series lead that, you know, there wasn't, you didn't get, you know, salt rubbed in the wound with an OT loss last night and losing a defenseman. So that at least is a positive. Bruins are able to get the win on a ridiculous shot by Brad Marchandia to Karask, who played out of his mind last night. Um, and it was interesting because after game two, or I forget if it was directly after game two or maybe it was the off day when uh, Bruce Cassidy had said that, you know, Tuca has been dealing with nagging injuries, which he has, you know, he's not lying. I mean, I think throughout the season he's dealt with it, but um, hopefully that he can continue to push through that. Um, I would expect that he continues to start. You know, I don't think that, the Bruins bring, you know, Swayman in for any reason, you know, unless the, the injuries get worse. Um, but he was tremendous last night. Brad Marsh and leadership group was excellent last night. So uh, big, great stuff there. Craig Smith scored in his first game back in the lineup after missing game two and then most of game one. So that was good to see for him. So as we look at the other series, you had Carolina and Tampa Bay playing game three last night. Tampa Bay winning the first two games of the series rather easily, um, if if I might say. Um, you know, so Tampa Bay, second series in a row that they have grabbed, um, that they have grabbed the first two games on the road. Um, and so, you know, both games two to one, Carolina really, I think, struggling for any type of offense in the first two games. Um, but got a couple goals last night. Sebastian Ajo was really good. Had a goal and two assists. Assisted on uh, Jordan Stahl's winning goal in overtime. So Carolina gets the win last night. You know, I think the biggest thing for Carolina is to take advantage of their power plays um, and take advantage of your scoring chances because Tampa Bay is not a team that you want to give extra opportunities to. Um, so I think, yeah, game four tomorrow afternoon at four. In Tampa Bay, this is a hu- another huge game for Carolina. Um, but it's interesting because I actually did not think that this series was going to be as low scoring as it's been. Um, if Tampa Bay had scored six goals, Carolina five in the three games. So I honestly think that it plays to Carolina, it plays to Tampa Bay's advantage a little bit to play lower scoring games because I think that they have a, a decided advantage in goal. You know, not that. Nedeljkovic has not been pretty good in the playoffs. Not that Morazic wasn't excellent last night, which he was. But I think that anytime you have a goalie who's as good as Vasilevsky, who's probably hands down the best goalie in the league, you're going to have an advantage when you play low-scoring games. So um, biggest thing for Carolina is to just play it, you know, a shift by shift. And I think that Carolina is a team that's not going to get, you know, not going to get down on themselves. They're always going to believe that they're in a game, that they're in a series. Um, you know, there's not much negative to take out of the first two games other than, 
you know, you lose two to one. It's not like, you know, you lose five, nothing and four to one that you really get blown out. Um, but you have two teams that are very evenly matched. You know, I think two of the best teams in that division this season, you know, Tampa Bay obviously was able to beat Florida, but I think that you're seeing two teams that are really familiar with each other, really, you know, understand what makes the other team tick. So I'm very curious to see what happens in game four of that series. Tampa Bay leads two games to one. Um, out west, you have Colorado that uh, punked Vegas in that first game, 7-1, to one, not even close. And he had some nastiness that uh, took place in game one. Ryan Reeves got a, a couple game suspension. Uh, we'll talk about player safety again in a minute, but um, Colorado taking advantage of uh, Robin Leonard in game one. You know, I thought it was an interesting call to play Robin Leonard in game one. You know, I think that it made sense to give Flurry a little bit of rest, but yikes, you know, losing a game seven to one and then losing in overtime in game two, you know, really not ideal. But by no means is this series over. You know, I think it was obvious seeing that Vegas really got their legs under them and played a really good game in game two. Um, Colorado just took advantage of a power play in overtime with Ranton and getting that goal. And, you know, I think this series goes the distance. I think it goes six or seven. Um, I really don't think that Colorado is going to run away with the series. You know, I think especially if you saw the way that Vegas played in game two, you know, Flurry comes back in in game two and plays really, really well. So um, I think that Vegas should be able to take advantage of the home games. But this is a giant game three. If Vegas doesn't win this game three, they're, they're losing the series. There's no way that they're coming back um, from three nothing down, especially against a team like Colorado. But you do have two teams that, you know, arguably I think are the two best teams in hockey this season. So I think anything really is possible in this series. But I expect Vegas to take game three. So that game three is tonight at 10 o'clock on NBCSN. And then game four is in Vegas again on eight thir- at 8.30 on Sunday. The Jets and the Canadians, obviously, the big story of this series is the Mark Shifley hit on uh, Jacob Evans at the end of game one. Um, so I will just say off the bat, it was an incredibly dangerous hit. Totally, you know, not worth it at all. You know, it's just, I get trying to stop a guy from scoring a goal. Believe me, I get it. You know, that it's the playoffs. It's a one-goal game. You want to prevent an empty net goal so you can keep your team in the game. I get all that. But at a certain point, you have to take into account safety for the other team that you're playing against. And I don't think Mark Shifley did that at all. I just think he blindly sees... There's a player with an opportunity. I have to take him out by any means necessary. And I think that honestly is what went through his head. Look, I don't think that when he sees Jacob Evans in the position to score, I don't think he sees it as I'm going to, you know, intentionally hurt this guy. I don't think that that is going through his head. Um, I think that what's going through his head is what I just said guy with a tremendous scoring opportunity, I'm going to do whatever is necessary to take him out or to not let him score. Um, and I think that, unfortunately, that line of thinking leads you, it is dangerous and leads you into 
that I'm going to do whatever is necessary, including leaving your feet, making contact with the guy's head, and taking him out. And it just, it's just unfortunate that this stuff keeps happening. And I don't think that Mark Shifley has disrespect for Jacob Evans. I don't think he's going into that. I'm going to, you know, hurt this guy. You know, I don't think that he goes in with the idea to do that. But at the same time, it's not, it doesn't make this hit defensible. I don't want people to get confused by what I'm saying. It doesn't make this hit less. It doesn't make this hit not dirty. It absolutely is. There's no place in the game for that type of stuff. Um, and you saw the way Jacob Evans get, went down. And you saw that he had to be stretchered off the ice. And, you know, I just, I, I don't know how that is going to change unless the league really steps in and is serious about suspending guys when they go over the line. Giving a guy like Shively a four-game suspension isn't going to do anything. I thought when I saw that hit, he's getting suspended the rest of the series, minimum. But, you know, the CBA is really stupid, and the maximum punishment you could give him is five games. And they didn't even give him the maximum games. And it's just, it's laugh-out-loud funny that you have a Department of Player Safety that is so inept at their job that you, like, you are asking for retribution with this. You know that game, game six, if there's a game six, Montreal will absolutely go after Shifley and something worse probably will happen that a Montreal player will go after Mark Shifley and probably with the intent to injure him. And it's like, well, it could be avoided if you had suspended him the entire series. But now the league has opened up an entire can of worms that it's just you have put yourself in a corner. And I just, this is going to keep happening until players are properly suspended, until players are properly disciplined for the hits that they make. And it's like, it's, I just don't think the NHL has any interest in doing that. And it's just, it's really frustrating. And I don't care what side of the team that you're on. You know, I don't care if you're a diehard Jets fan. You can look at that play and say that it's dirty because it is. And believe me, Mark Shively is one of my favorite players in the NHL. He's one of my favorite players to watch. And I can look at that and say that that is, without a doubt, malicious, totally just unacceptable. You can't do that. And maybe he didn't have malicious intent, like I said. But at the end of the day, you see that hit, you're thinking, yes, that is absolutely a predatory to the head, leaves his feet. It's like everything that you everything that you shouldn't do and it's just it's frustrating that we're constantly in this same position because the department of player safety can't do their own damn job and they can't do it correctly and kudos to the new york rangers for calling them out a few weeks ago you know when tom wilson decided to go all wwe on artemi panarin and they call it out and say that george peros the department of player safety is not capable of making the right decisions and they're not they're absolutely not so it's just it's going to it's going to keep this type of stuff is going to continue to happen until god forbid someone dies god forbid someone becomes paralyzed you know it's like 
that's what we're trending towards. That is what we're trending towards. And that's not something that anyone wants to think about right now. So it just, it's just frustrating that we continue to do this and, you know, nothing changes. So, you know, hope that Jacob Evans can recover okay and, you know, don't even, I, me personally, I don't even care if he gets on the ice again in the playoffs. Just hope that he can recover okay. It's the same thing with, you know, Tavares. You know, it's a different situation, but, you know, it was good to see him at least get back on the ice, but just, it's unfortunate. So, uh, game two of that series is tonight. Um, Montreal played a really excellent game one. You know, they're a team that I think that, they might just be a playoff hockey type team. I mean, you saw what happened with them last year, beating the fifth seeded Penguins in the bubble last year as the 12th seed. So, you know, they're a team that plays really well when the games start to matter more. So, you know, kudos to them. Carey Price was excellent. And, you know, obviously for Winnipeg, losing Shifley is a big deal. You know, he's one of their best players. So uh, Winnipeg's really going to need to step up because I don't think they can afford to go down 2-0 in this series. Um, I will just say, just the last note on that on that hit, um, Nick Ehlers, if you saw the replay, does everything he can to protect Jacob Evans from being, you know, someone falling on him or someone, you know, trying to throw a punch. And I just think that tremendous kudos to Nick Ehlers for trying to protect Jacob Evans so that, you know, nothing else happened. And just as... It's unfortunate that Mark Shifley, his teammate, couldn't take into account that same type of, you know, thought process that I need to protect my fellow players. And I don't care if you're trying to prevent a goal. Like, in no way, like, that doesn't make that hit okay. It doesn't. So, just, again, it's just really frustrating that we have to continue, continue to go down this path, um, so some other news, the Buffalo Sabres winning the draft lottery the other night. So they will get the number one pick, uh, Seattle getting the second pick, and then rounding out the top five, Anaheim, New Jersey, and Columbus um, with the top five. So uh, good news for the Sabres after a season that's been really, really frustrating. Um, so <clears throat> that will be that will be interesting to see. Interesting to see what happens with that. So, I think that makes sense for us to go to talking about the Red Sox and the frustrating series that they just had in Houston um, with a three-game three game losing streak in Houston. They were able to snap it, so they played four games I really worded that really terribly. The Red Sox lose three out of four in Houston is what I was trying to say. So uh, obviously, you know, look at the standings in a moment. I think that, you know, going into that series with Houston, Houston is a team that, you know, is not the best team in baseball. You know, they certainly are not the same level as they were a number of years ago, you know, with the World Series win and then going to the World Series. Um, but they're still a good team, very talented, you know, can beat you offensively with, uh, with timely hitting, 
you know, they have some really good pitching there, you know, despite some injuries that they've had. Um, so Red Sox lose three out of four. You know, this was a series in which the offense really struggled. You know, you lost 11 to two in game one um, and then five to one and then two to one. So the Red Sox honestly got some good pitching in this series and we'll get more into the starting pitching in a moment. Um, but the Red Sox were able to salvage a win. Uh, five to one yesterday. Martin Perez was really, really good. Uh, the Red Sox got a three-run home run from Christian Arroyo, and I think it was Bogarts or Devers that had an RBI double. So Red Sox win five to one. So you know, frustrating series in Houston. You know, I think that the Red Sox have been a team that's been really excellent on the road, but you know, a tough series loss in Houston. But as I said to someone last night, it's a long season and. I think that, and I've said this on the podcast probably, that, you know, it's a long season. You'll go through stretches where the offense struggles and struggles with runners in scoring position. Um, Well, you know, the Red Sox have struggled with that pretty much all season. Um, But I think that, yeah, you're going to go through stretches where the offense is going to struggle. You're undoubtedly going to go through stretches where the pitching struggles or certain guys struggle. You know, that's kind of what we've been seeing right now. Um, But I think that, not to overreact to it. You know, I think that uh, Houston's a good team. And, you know, speaking of good teams, the Red Sox will uh, play the Yankees for three games this weekend, their first meeting of the season, uh, 7.05 tonight, 7.15 on Saturday night on Fox, and then they'll play on Sunday night baseball at 7 o'clock on Sunday. So, again, a big test for the Red Sox on the road against a team that you are going to be battling pretty much all season. I think with Tampa Bay and Toronto. So, you know, you have four teams that are really going to be battling almost all season, I think, for that first place or second place. They're most, they're very likely could, could be two playoff teams that come out of the AL East. I think that that's possible. So I think for the Red Sox, just forget about that Houston series. Try to take advantage of the Yankees pitching that's not Garrett Cole and you know, see if you can get some good outings from Nate Evaldi, who goes tonight, and then Eduardo Rodriguez, who goes tomorrow. So, you know, I think for for the Red Sox offensively, you got to be better with runners in scoring position. You're not going to do very well in a baseball season if you can't do that consistently. So the Red Sox sit at 33-23. and 23. We'll take a look at the standings in a moment. Um, but I did want to add a note about the starting pitching for the Red Sox that... Um, has been pretty solid this year, but it's very strange because it's not the it's not the guys that you would expect. You know, I think that you would expect that, you know, Nathan Navaldi and Eduardo Rodriguez would be their best pitchers. Now, Ivaldi is six and two, but it doesn't really tell the whole story because he's only had three quality starts in eleven starts, so you know I wouldn't say that he's been excellent. You know, he's been pretty good you know, an ERA of four, you know, six and two. So it means that he's probably getting good run support, which he is. Um, But I think that it's interesting because you have some other starters that have been really good. You know, Garrett Richards, who obviously got off to a rough start, but has been pitching really, really good recently. Had a really good outing the other night against Houston. Um, Is four and four with the 375 ERA. So, you know, you're getting him to pitch pretty well. You know, he's had four quality starts. Um, which is tied for the team lead with Pavetta. Um, 
but you're just getting good, consistent starting pitching, and I think that's the biggest thing. Um, and then Pavetta, obviously, you know, six and one, three seventy seven ERA. You have a couple guys who consistently have pitched really, really well, and then you saw Martin Perez had a really good outing last night, um, and he's four and two with a three point oh nine ERA. So he's the guy with the lowest ERA on the starting staff. So it's been good to see that those three guys are have been really good, have not missed a start. I don't think that you've had um, any other starts from anyone other than Tanner Houck, who made two starts at the beginning of the season, um, and Rodriguez, who's made 10 starts. You know, he's had a tough... He's probably been the guy that's been the worst starting pitcher, which is, I think, not really what you would expect, 5-4 and four with a, a 564 ERA, and he's given up 63 hits in uh, 52 and two-thirds. So... You know, I think that Erod might just be going through one of those tough stretches. You know, does the the do the after effects of COVID definitely have something to do with it? You know, I would think so. I don't think that he necessarily would let that be known, but I think that it's fair to wonder. You know, guy who sat out the entire season, um, and so I think that you know it might just be something that he just is having a hard time with. You know, he's given up eight home runs, which is um, the most on the staff or the most of, of any Red Sox pitcher. Um, so, you know, hopefully he can get it, can can figure it out. You know, he's a guy that will start game two of the, the Yankee series. The Red Sox will throw Richards in game three. Um, so, obviously, the Yankees have had the Red Sox number a lot recently. I think it's 17 of the last 19 they've won against Boston. Sox were one and nine against New York last season. So, you know, big opportunity for the Red Sox to bounce back and prove that that Houston series is a fluke. Um, really need some timely hitting against the Yankees um, in this series. You know, obviously you've had J.D. Martinez, who's continuing to hit the ball. Uh, Bogarts has been excellent. You know, Devers has been good. Um, you have Verdugo, who seems to be in a rhythm. Um, and Hunter Renfro, too. You know, he's a guy that's continuing. It's like every time in the last couple of weeks, you know, we've looked at the Red Sox, it seems like he is just continuing to be one of their best hitters. You know, seven home runs, 24 RBIs, tied for fourth on the team with seven home runs with Verdugo. Um, but, you know, he's been playing really, really well, which is great to see. So um, be curious to see what the lineup looks like against the Yankees. But yeah, keep keeping your eye on Renfro. who's a guy that was hitting, I believe, below 200 at one point this season. His batting average is all the way up to 261, 24 RBIs. So uh, the Red Sox getting good production out of him pretty much every time he's been in the lineup recently. Um, so as we take a look at the standings and just some other notes from baseball, um, the... Red Sox currently sit in second place in the division. I think two games behind Tampa Bay. Uh, Tampa Bay has been red hot recently. They won seven out of ten, um, and they are two games in first place at thirty-six and twenty-two. So the Red Sox, two games back of Tampa Bay, uh, the Yankees are two and a half back of the Red Sox. So they could certainly do some damage to that if they have a good series against the Red Sox. Um, and then you know Toronto is. I think been kind of plugging along a little bit, but they're a team that you also, I think, have to 
think about in the back of your mind. So they're five games out of first place, three games behind the Red Sox. In the Central, you have the White Sox, who are playing really, really well. They have a three-game lead over Cleveland and a five-game lead over Kansas City for first place. And then in the West, you know, the Astros had a really good series against the Red Sox, winning three out of four. So they're just a game back of first place um, of Oakland. And then Seattle is four games back. They've kind of made things interesting in that division. Moving over to the National League, you have Eric Bellier's New York Mets in first place. It'd be uh, good for him to hear that. Uh, Atlanta, three and a half back. Philadelphia, four back. So uh, the Mets have been playing really excellent baseball at home. Not so much on the road. Um, so I'm sure we'll get Eric in here at some point around the trade deadline. You can ask him about that uh, home and away record. Very strange. So it's almost like the opposite of the Red Sox, who are really good away from home. But, you know, at home, they kind of have struggled. They're 16-13, and 13, which is better than what it was a couple of weeks ago. But very interesting how that works. Um, and then you have Chicago in first place in the Central, a game and a half ahead of St. Louis, two games ahead of Milwaukee. Cubs are at 32 and 24. And they're very good at home, 21 and 10. They are 8 and 2 in their last 10, so they're in first place. In the West, you have the Giants holding on to first place, a game ahead of San Diego, two games ahead of the Dodgers. You know, it's interesting that. The Giants, I think, were much like the Red Sox. That I think a lot of people thought that they were going to fall off after a good start. But, you know, they've been playing some really good baseball. I think that, you know, looking at that record, it's actually the second-best record in baseball. There's a game behind uh, Tampa Bay Rays. So they've been playing some good baseball, really good at home, really good away, got a pretty good run differential. But I got to tell you, I did not expect the American League West um, – I did not expect the American League West to be potentially a three-team race with the San Francisco Giants. So um, that is interesting. So um, breaking news into the podcast right now, I just got a report from Bleacher Report that uh, Cam Newton appeared to hurt his hand in um, a session. So I think OTAs, off-season workouts, whatever you want to call it, um, and did not take any more reps the rest of the day. So... Um, you know, not going to speculate at all. And it's actually interesting because Cam was one of the things I'm going to talk about in the next segment with the Red, with the uh, Patriots. Um, but that's all we got for baseball. So we'll move on. Um, not a lot about Julio Jones in the last two days. You know, I think that obviously the June 1st, June 2nd deadline has passed. So, you know, the Falcons will be able to save some money if they deal him now. Um, but it's been oddly quiet, you know, it really seemed like it was heating up last week, you know, obviously wrote an article about it last week about the Patriots and why it would be a smart move for them to go after him. Um, but we've not heard anything. Um, and I think that I may have said this on last week's or two weeks ago, but I think the longer this goes on, the lower the price is going to be. Um, I think that the longer, you know, I don't know if Atlanta has any offers. You would think that they would. Um, but I just think that the longer this goes on, I just think that the less and less people are going to want to trade a first-round pick for him. Um, so, you know, if someone asked me, you know, what does it make more sense if the Patriots, you know, include a player? Um, and I don't think so. Like, I don't think that would entice Atlanta more. 
because I think that they're a team that, you know, they're not very good. You know, they most likely, if they're going to trade Julio Jones, you know, is one of their, if not their best player, um, that they want to build for the future. And, you know, yes, if you trade them a young player like a, a Sonny Michelle or a Nikhil Harry, you know, you know, that's a young piece. But I just think if you're Atlanta, you want to get as many draft picks as you possibly can to try to rebuild as quick as you can. Um, and I think that draft picks, you know, really are more valuable to teams than young talent. And it's like, I also think that, you know, it remains to be seen about Nikhil Harry, about whether he can be a legitimate NFL wide receiver. You know, I think Sony Michelle is a bit better in terms of, you know, what he can do and what he's shown you at the running back position. Um, but I just think that if you're Atlanta, you want to try to get as many picks as you can. Um, and I think that if the Patriots are going to make a trade that they can, you know, offer them multiple picks. Um, I did see something interesting that maybe teams offer first round picks in 2023. So not next year, but the year after. So um, that will be something to keep an eye on, I think. Um, so moving into our next thing, which is ironic that I, you know, got that update just now. Uh, but Josh McDaniels had some interesting things to say about Cam Newton um, the other day, you know, just talking about how he kind of was brought in under unique circumstances last year and, you know, didn't have a ton of time to grasp the offense and, you know, could have been why he struggled. But, you know, he made an interesting comment that, you know, something that I agreed with that, you know, the situation that Cam came into last season was unlike any situation he's ever seen. Because even he said, you know, rookies come in with some, or so it's like, he, he said something to the effect of, you know, rookie quarterbacks usually have a lot of time with the organization, you know, before when, so Cam Newton joined on with the Patriots in June last year. So rookie quarterbacks, you know, usually have a ton of time with the team, you know, before then that they, you know, are drafted, you know, take a look at the playbook, go through, you know, OTAs and things like that. But Cam Newton, like, didn't really get any of that last year, you know, and then to make matters worse, he played, to make matters worse, he played in a truncated, pre, truncated training camp. There was no preseason last year and was kind of just thrown into it. Um, and honestly, like, you consider all that, there were a couple of games where he was really good. You know, he had a couple of games where he threw for over 350 yards. You know, had that game week two against Seattle. And then, you know, after he had COVID, had an excellent game against uh, Houston later in the season. So that tells me that he's still capable of being a good, solid quarterback. And, you know, Josh's comments yesterday made it seem like he thinks that, you know, he can see a second-year leap from Cam Newton that he seems to be grasping everything, you know, really, really well. And, you know, is someone that you can hope could, you know, have a bounce back here that he has a lot more time with the offense, with the players. There's more familiarity. And, you know, I definitely agree with that. So now, obviously, this complicates things with the news just now. But, you know, I don't want to speculate how serious that hand injury might be, you know, speculate on whether Mac Jones will be the starter you know, any of that stuff. I think that that's getting ahead of ourselves, but definitely that's something to keep your eye on. 
Um, but again, you know, it is early. If it's not, it's not a very serious hand injury, then, you know, I don't expect it to change anything. But, you know, obviously keep an eye on that. Keep an eye on the offseason workouts that are going on. You know, I think good stuff, good things are happening with this group. You know, I think that whoever the quarterback is, whether it's Cam Newton, whether it's Mac Jones, you know, I think that you can feel confident, you know, in this team going forward. And I think defensively is not really anything you have to worry about. You know, I think that defensively the Patriots will be able to stay in most games um, and that the offense isn't going to really necessarily be relied upon to score 30 points a game like it used to be. Um, So I think that you know, definitely keep an eye on how the rookies are doing. Keep an eye on how Mac Jones is doing. You know, keep an eye on that um, injury situation, you know, if it gets worse or, or any of that. But um, it was worth noting that um, Steelers' Ben Roethlisberger, you know, made it clear that, you know, he came to the team to restructure his contract. Very curious to see how that team's offense does this year. Uh, obviously, bringing back Smith-Schuster couple of good players on offense, uh, Chase Claypool, and then they drafted Najee Harris, which I think was a tremendous pick for them that I think that could make the offense a little bit more, less reliant upon Ben Roethlisberger, that they can run the ball and really have an effective running game. Because you saw what Najee Harris uh, could do at Alabama, you know, really in the same same fold as um, Derrick Henry, Damian Harris, uh, Bo Scarborough to a, to, to a lesser extent. Um, but then, you know, obviously he was outstanding last year at Bama. So, you know, I think that very interesting things with the Steelers this season, you know, I'm not sure how competitive they're going to be because I think that uh, Cleveland may have gotten better than them and may have passed them, you know, and then you also have uh, Baltimore already that's been a really good team over the last few years and you have Lamar Jackson who's going to I think going to be really really good this season so um, definitely just some things to keep your eye on with the NFL so uh, before we let you guys go just some etc thoughts on other uh, sports Major League Soccer Revolution are um, on an international break so they will not play until June 19th so they got a couple more weeks off Um is worth noting, I did write an article on Garrett Hayden Sports Media about Carlos Heel um, and his new contract extension that I failed to talk about on the podcast the last week. Somehow I forgot about that. But, and, you know, as I said in the article, it's really amazing to think that, you know, bringing in a guy like Heel and bringing in a coach like Bruce Arena really has um, changed things for the revolution that it really didn't seem like they were going anywhere. But it's like, you hire a coach who's very serious about winning, very serious about, you know, setting a, a culture in New England that I think is one of the things that they were missing for a long time. You know, what's their identity? And I think that they really weren't playing without one. But I think that now you bring in a coach that's been really successful, has had success in this league, understands what it means to to win, that I think the Revolution are playing at a, a, a clip that we've not seen them play and a very long time. You know, I think that uh, first place in the Eastern Conference, not somewhere I expected them to be, but it's awesome that they've gotten off to a good start. You know, that was one of the things that they kind of needed to make clear that, you know, we need to get off to a better start. We need to be better at home. Revolution have not lost at home yet this season. Um, 
you know, currently just a point behind Seattle for the top spot in the league. Um, but you've had the forwards playing outstanding. Adam Buxa has um, four goals. He's been awesome this season. You know, really is just a different player than the guy that we saw last season. Just a guy that really has adjusted very well to the MLS game. Um, you have Carlos Heal, who's had um, a goal and three assists. Gustavo Bo, two goals, two assists. Great to see Bo and uh, Buxa hook up for uh, a goal against the Red Bulls in their last game. Um, or not the last game, the game before. Uh, Revolution beat Cincinnati 1-0 on Buxa's goal in their last game. So they were off until the 19th. Um, but it's just great to see the chemistry of those three designated players, Carlos Seal, uh, Adam Buxa, and Gustavo Bo, you know, really kind of the three big guys for the Revs. And I think that you have finally some top-level talent, top-level talent that will, you know, be here for a while with Carlos Seal signing the new contract extension. So um, things are looking good for the Revs. I think it's good for them to get some time off get a break so they will return to action um saturday june 19th they will play at nycfc um so take a quick look at the wnba take a look at the standings uh connecticut sun have had a really good start to the season um continuing their good start seven and two um currently tied for first with this in the standings with uh the seattle storm Seattle, obviously, the defending champs. So both teams have been playing really, really well this season. Then you have Las Vegas Aces, a game back of first place. They made the finals last season. They've been playing some good basketball. Um, New York Liberty, obviously, a fun team to watch with uh, UNESCO. Um, And you have two games tonight, Dallas and Seattle at 10 o'clock, and then Atlanta and Minnesota at 8 o'clock. So we will also take a look at the Premier Lacrosse League, uh, the season starts tonight. Actually, this weekend they will have games at Gillette Stadium, so um, definitely check in on that. Games are on Peacock. Um, I think all the games are on Peacock, and then you have a couple games that will be on NBCSN um, Saturday and Sunday. So the game tonight, the Cannons, who are in the uh, PLL for the first time, will play the Redwoods tonight at 7 o'clock. So Cannons, obviously, the, the Boston team, and uh, Chris Hogan, former Patriot wide receiver, playing for the Cannons. So that will be interesting to watch if you're into that sort of thing. So uh, good luck to Chris. Good luck to the Cannons. And, you know, who knows? Maybe they'll bring uh, New England another championship. <laughs> well, you know, the league is uh, kind of a, a barnstorming league, if you will. That's actually a very old term. Um, <laughs> but basically it's, you know, a league that travels to different sites different sites each week so this week they're at Gillette Stadium next week they're in Atlanta so you know the teams are not based in a physical city they just travel which is really cool which is a really interesting concept so definitely check that out if you're into lacrosse and even if you're not I think throw it on for a few minutes just see if you like it you might be surprised how much you like it you know obviously uh, living in Sudbury, I've been, you know, around lacrosse pretty much my entire life. So um, always a fun sport to watch. And congratulations to the uh, BC women's lacrosse team who uh, last weekend won their first ever national championship. Uh, big, big congrats 
And hey, Boston's got another championship. So if you didn't know, hey, great bonus for you. But uh, seriously, big congratulations uh, to the program over there. Uh, Virginia men also won. They're also won the championship second straight year that they've won. Obviously, tournament was not played last year, so they won in 2019, but they uh, won their second straight. So um, with that, I think that that probably does it for this week. Um, Everyone enjoy the weather this weekend. Well, try to stay cool because it's going to be really, really hot. Um, But yeah, have a great weekend, everyone. Go Bruins and... Yeah, enjoy the uh, NBA playoffs. No, the Celtics aren't in it, but uh, things will be very interesting for the Celtics in the next coming weeks and months. All right, we'll talk to you later, everyone.